0: Hey good morning everyone. Welcome church. Glad to have you here this morning. We're going to start our worship time with some upbeat songs. We're going to pick one. We're going to start with one that uses the imagery and language of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel had a vision of the throne room in heaven and the one sitting on the throne he called the ancient of days. So we're going to sing that song. And the imagery in there talks about worshiping the Lord. And as you remember, last time I was up here, I told you that worship in the ancient times meant to bend the knee or to bow, which is something that we don't do very much, but I think we understand what the sentiment is. So I pray that you will do that, and you will hear those words in the song. So let's stand together if you can, and let's sing together Ancient of Days.
1: this morning as we come together and we both rejoice what we just saying, right, that there's coming a day when death will be no more, when sin will be defeated, and we look forward to that day. But also we come together in the reality that we live here now in this broken world, so we have this time this morning to come together to encourage one another, to keep our eyes fixed on that coming day, and to live faithfully here now while we wait for that day to come. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we're glad that you are here with us this morning. If there's anything you'd like to let us know um, or communicate to the church, there's a connect card on the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out, and you can place that in uh, the wooden boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where tithes and offerings can be placed this morning. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention. First, is that then in a couple of Sundays on August 20th, following the worship service here, we will have baptisms down at Maple Lake, down kind of by Cy Williams Park. We will worship here together, then head down there afterward for a picnic. You can bring your own picnic lunch. We will have baptism and just enjoy time together and celebrating baptisms then. If you're interested in being baptized, you can reach out to me. Like we would encourage anyone who is a follower of Jesus who hasn't been baptized, to be obedient to him in that. And so if you're interested in, in doing that, you can contact me. My email is in the bulletin, or you can talk to me personally, or you can write on your Connect card and drop it in the box, and we will be in touch. Also, Sunday school is coming up. We'll be getting soon, and so if you have a child who will be in Sunday school with us this year, there's sign-up sheets downstairs. We would invite you to, encourage you to fill that out, just so we have a feel for numbers for the coming year. And then also, we've had a, a good problem recently in the nursery in that like it's full, right? And they're bursting at the seams. And so we're starting a process of kind of expanding that. Right? And so it'll be, it'll be three or four weeks of the nursery we typically use not being available. Right? So we'll use alternate classrooms, but just be aware that'll be happening. So um, yeah, just kind of be aware of that. And if you're interested in in helping with any of the, the work that's involved in that, you can talk to Wayne in Canada and he will kind of be in touch about what work needs to actually be done. If you don't know Wayne, you can reach out to the church office or to me and we'll get you in touch. As we continue the time of worship this morning, would you just join me in a time of prayer? Father, we, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people to put aside the the busyness of our lives to, to find this place where we can be together as your followers and your children in the midst of a chaotic and broken world. Each of us comes to you this morning bearing burdens that are the result of living in a world marked by sin and by suffering. But would this service this morning serve to encourage each of us? Would it serve to nourish each of us? Would it serve to remind us of your goodness and your love for us even in the midst of Brokenness and trial and tribulation. Father, I pray that our hearts this morning would be fixed on your goodness, your love. pray that we would leave here this morning, with our heart transformed. We'd leave here this morning, looking more like Jesus when we walked in here this morning. We leave this morning with a deeper trust in you and your love for us and your goodness to us. Father, we pray that you would be at work, not only in our hearts, but in the the lives of our friends and our coworkers and our family members and neighbors and community members who need to know you, who we seek to tell about your love for, that you would make us faithful witnesses as we live out our lives in the places you've called us to. Father, would all that we do here this morning, all that takes place, the songs we sing, the, the words we read from your word, would it all serve to work in our hearts so we can bring you honor and glory and praise. We pray in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. So have you ever thought that the Ten Commandments weren't really much of a challenge? I confess I have. For example, the last five are about not stealing or coveting or murdering, and those are things that I don't struggle too much with. Unless someone cuts me off in traffic, then it's a good thing the murdering one is in there. I used to think that the command about not taking the Lord's name in vain was about swearing. But recently I learned that um, the Hebrew words actually means to not bear or wear the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, if you're going to call yourself a follower of God, you should live like one. That makes that one a little tougher than it was. But the ones about worshiping idols, I mean, those are obsolete, right? Nobody almost anywhere in the world does that anymore. But I had an epiphany last March in Ennis, Texas, at a Buckys gas station. You, if you don't know what a Buckys in Texas is, I'll think about quick trip, merged with Hobby Lobby, raised to the power of three, and really, really clean. so that's a Bucky's. So I was wandering around in there uh, looking at the, you know, somewhere in the 30,000 square feet of non essentials that they had in the store. I was wandering around and I saw a t shirt that said, God is a Texan. And of course, my first thought was, man, these Texans are arrogant, aren't they? Um, But then then I had an epiphany for me anyway, and I was saying, you know, these Texans are making God in their image, right? They're not saying that God lives in Texas. They're saying God shares the culture, preferences, beliefs, politics, values of Texans. Um, So I started judging those Texans, and then I had another epiphany. You know, that's what people have been doing since the beginning, They've been making God in their image because believing that God is just like us puts a caricature of God in the place of God, and is that not idolatry? So that's uh, what we do, and it helps us to justify um, what seems to doing what seems to be right in our own eyes because we feel that God has the same values that we do. I've heard many folks lament the fact that their children don't share their values. And my third epiphany came much later and said, you know, God doesn't share much of our values either, or we don't share God's values. If we think he does, then surely we've made an idol out of our own image. We may share some of God's values, but some of God's values are not our values, and some of our values are not God's values. And I've also heard that every Christian tradition is an echo chamber that emphasizes certain parts of Scripture and ignores others. And all my life, I've believed that God is an evangelical, that our theology is God's theology. And um, recently, I've uh, come to understand that when we read the Bible, we're reading somebody else's mail. So until we can't understand it until we understand what it meant to the people that were getting it in the first place. And then we can translate that into our own time and culture. So you've heard me talk about the Bible Project a lot. They've really revolutionized the way that I understand the Bible because they unpack the words and phrases in the Bible to teach what it meant to the people that heard it originally. So we're going to watch one of their videos now. And this one offers what I call a gentle insight into a theme that's common in both the Old and New Testaments that has been de emphasized in our evangelical tradition, which probably means that we are ignoring or maybe even opposing something that God values and is important to Him. So let's watch now.
2: If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate.
3: And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals.
2: You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other.
3: But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be
2: treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works.
3: And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others.
2: Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them.
3: And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep
2: the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah,
3: and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them.
2: Yeah, some people call this charity.
3: But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable
2: and changing social structures to prevent
3: injustice.
2: So justice and righteousness (laughs) are about a radical, selfless way of life.
3: Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just
2: righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged, and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the
3: word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God.
2: So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God.
3: Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become
2: oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this
3: is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them.
2: The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways.
3: Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others.
2: This is a radical way of life. And it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving
3: your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.
0: So one consequence of my idolatry and making God in my image is I've generally felt pretty good about myself in terms of spiritual health. For example, when communion we're asked to examine ourselves, I usually give myself a pretty solid thumbs up. And why wouldn't I if God is made in my image, right? So maybe that's one of the best indicators of whether we have made God in our image and have an idol in our life. If I think that God is generally happy with my actions and my thoughts and my social media posts and my politics, then maybe I'm worshiping an idol. But if, like in the words of Amazing Grace, I see myself as missing the mark when compared to a holy God, then God is very happy with me because I know I need a Savior. So we are going to sing Amazing Grace now. Uh, Words were written by John Newton. I don't know if you know, but John Newton, for much of his life, was a slave trader. He was a very, very bad man. And many times that I've sung the words, who saved a wretch like me, I've been singing John Newton's words, saying, yeah, they saved a wretch like John Newton, a slave trader. But, you know, he wrote those words many years after he had been saved, a pastor, and even an abolitionist. He still wrote those words. He still thought of himself as needing a savior because he was not what God wanted. So even the cleaned-up version of himself, he saw himself as in need of a savior. So as we sing this rich song from the past, compare yourself to the real God. This is the God who's reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. There Jesus calls us to trust in God for everything and put others, including our worst enemies, ahead of ourselves and he even says, thinking an impure thought is the same as doing it. All right, well, that makes me guilty of a lot of things. So I think it's a lot easier to sing the words of a great amazing grace in the right spirit when you compare yourself to the real God. So let's stand together and sing this song.
1: spirit you would come and you would work in our hearts to to soften places that are hard to make us receptive to oh, you you would have us here this morning. Pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Maybe seated if you just like Google any list of like, the top 100 books of all time, you'd likely find at least one, if not two books, by the French author Victor Hugo. Right? He's the author of both The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. Right? And what you, well, you may not know about those two books, right? they're both well-known, but there's a 31-year gap between when those two books were published. Right? So the Hunchback of Notre Dame was published in... 1831, and Les Mis was published in 1862. And I find it ironic and maybe a little bit strange that, like, we call The Hunchback of Notre Dame by an English title, right? We give it an English title, even though Hugo wrote that book in France. Meanwhile, we call Les Miserables by its French title, even though he wrote that book while living in the United Kingdom, Apparently, like, The Miserable Ones, which would be the translation, is not a very attractive title. So we just call it by the French title, right? But but Hugo wrote Les Mis while living on the island of, of Guernsey. And just off the French coast, but it's a, a dependency of the United Kingdom. And he was living there because in addition in addition to being an author, he was also a politician in France. Right? And as a politician he had declared Napoleon II to be a traitor to France. And so when Napoleon III took power in 1851, Hugo had to flee France for his safety. And eventually he settled in in Guernsey as an exile there. And while living in exile, Hugo sought to make the most of it. In addition to writing Les Mis there, he, he just tried to enjoy his life living on this English island. And he wrote this at one point. He said, I am an exile and I am happy to be here. I love everything that suffers for freedom, for the fatherland, and for justice. I have peace of mind, even though it is always painful to tread on foreign soil. He was happy in exile. He was happy to be there. He was trying to make the most of his life in exile, but his heart still ached to return to France. And so in 1870, when Napoleon III fell from power, Hugo was able to return to France, and he did so almost immediately. And when he returned to France, he was greeted enthusiastically by many French citizens. In fact, many lined the streets when he returned and shouted, Long live Victor Hugo! And to which Hugo said to the people, In one hour, you have repaid 20 years of exile. I just find Hugo to be like a good example of what it looks like to handle exile well. Like He was able to make a life for himself and to enjoy himself while in exile, yet he never became too at home in his new country where he didn't want to leave. He was able to make a life for himself and enjoy himself in Guernsey. But the second he had the chance to return to France, he took it, because that was his true home. I think there's a lot to be learned there for, for us as Christians. And that in many ways, we as Christians that are called to live here on this earth, we live as exiles. We just finished up the book of Philippians where Paul reminds us that we are citizens of heaven. that this world is not our home. Likewise, Peter begins his letter, 1 Peter, by addressing his letter to God's elect exiles. And it's a statement that the people Peter is writing to, this world is not not their home. For everyone who calls themselves a Christian, we are exiles, we are aliens, we are sojourners and strangers on this earth. And so one of the important questions we must ask ourselves then is, how do I live well? How do I live faithfully as an exile? In particular, when... The values of my heavenly home clash with the values of this earth. How do I live a life that is faithful to God? How do I live well as an exile? It's an important question that we all need to wrestle with. So today we're starting this this new series, going through the book of Daniel. We're going to look at the first six chapters over the next six weeks. Spending one week in each chapter, starting with chapter 1. This morning. And what we'll see in this book is that Daniel and his friends are living in exile in Babylon. And they're constantly confronted with questions and choices about how to live faithfully in the midst of this exile. And so, my hope is that in this series, we'll, we'll learn from them what it looks like to, to live as exiles. We can apply that to our own lives as we seek to live as exiles on this earth. We start in chapter 1 this morning. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, we read this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some article from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. So, before we get too far into into this book, I just want to give us a little bit of historical context about what's going on as this book opens up. Right? So, on the screen, we have we have a timeline of kind of key events that are pertinent to this book. Right? And note that like the the timeline spacing not to scale, right? But it's but these are important dates nonetheless, right? So, in 931. B.C. Like the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, splits into the northern kingdom of Assyria and the southern, or the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And from that point forward, the northern kingdom of Israel is pretty much constantly disobedient, always disobeying God. And in 772 B.C., as a consequence for their refusal to obey God, they, God gives them into the hands of the Assyrians and Israel. In the southern kingdom of Judah is a little more up and down, right? they have some periods where they are obedient, and they turn back to God, and they repent, and they live for God briefly, but then those periods are often quickly outdone by more periods of disobedience. And as a result, we read here in Daniel that the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Babylon. We'll talk about this more later in the sermon, but it's important to note here that it is God who is the one who's at work in all of this. From an outside perspective, it would be really easy to look at this, look at what is going on with Judah and Babylon, and say, oh, look, Babylon is winning. Judah is losing. Therefore, the Babylonian gods must be winning, and the God of Judah must be losing. But No. It's the God of Judah who delivers Judah into the hands of the Babylonians. To which you might say, why would He do that? Well, because He promised He would. In Deuteronomy 29, as the Torah comes to a close, God renews His covenant one last time with His people. And He reminds His people what will happen if they keep the covenant, and what will happen if they don't keep the covenant. And He says... Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. If you keep the covenant, you will prosper in everything you do. But he also says, Make sure that there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord. He says, All the curses written in this book will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their name from under heaven. And then nations will ask, Why hath the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce, burning anger? And the answer will be, It is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the covenant He made with them when He brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them, gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land, so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In his furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land, as it is now. So God promised when he made his covenant with his people, if you don't obey this covenant, I'm going to uproot you from your land and thrust you into another land. And that's where we pick up the book of Daniel. That's what's happening right now as we pick up this book of Daniel. They're being exiled. They're being thrust into a new land. And for Judah, this process of exile had kind of three steps to it. We see the first step in verses 3 through 6 of Daniel chapter 1. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so in, in 605 BC, Babylon lays siege to Jerusalem, and they win and they carry off a select group of young well-educated, high-status men. These are the elite of the Israelite society. And they were brought into Babylon in order to be trained in, in Babylonian culture and to be integrated into the Babylonian court and to contribute to Babylonian prestige. That's where we are in the timeline this morning. Daniel and his friends are probably like teenagers when they've picked up. And they come to Babylon as part of the first kind of noble exile into Babylon. But just to give you a bit broader context, right? eight years after Daniel and his friends show up in uh, 605 B.C. right? Then in, in 597 B.C., eight years later, Babylon once again attacks Judah, and they this time bring 10,000 Jews back to Babylon. And then in 586 B.C., they once again attack Judah, and this time they will utterly destroy Jerusalem and Judah. Though importantly, they'll destroy the temple during this attack, and only the poorest and the lowliest will be allowed to stay in Jerusalem. Everyone else will be dragged back to Babylon to live as exiles. And then almost 50 years later, in 539 B.C., a new power will arise and Persia will come and they will defeat Babylon And Persia will be far less interested in in forcing people to live as exiles away from their home, and so they will allow many of the Jews to return to Jerusalem. That's what we see happening in books like Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. But the important thing for our purpose in this series is that Daniel, from 605 BC, lived through all the rest of that history. He's in Babylon through all of Babylon power until the fall to Persia. Right? Verse 21 of what we'll read this morning says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. King, king Cyrus was the king of Persia. Right? So that means that Daniel lived nearly 70 years of his life as an exile in Babylon. Right? And in 70 years, he sees all kinds of things. He has to handle all kinds of situations, which is why I think he's such a helpful guide for us. About how to live in exile. We live in a culture that is more and more unfriendly towards godly values. Daniel served as the example of what it looks like to live in the midst of that culture faithfully. But most of that is in the future. In today's passage, Daniel has just arrived in Babylon as a young man. at Probably 15 or so. And the Babylonians are starting the process of like, Babylonizing him, right, for lack of a better term. Right? They're, they're changing their names. They're, they're giving them new food. They're, they're ingratiating them into the culture. So with that in mind, let's read the rest of this chapter and see what that process looks like. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men of your age? The king, then, the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then come, then compare our appearance to that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar the king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so in this passage, Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Ezra, they all get their their first taste of living as exiles. They're, They're beginning the process of figuring out what it looks like to live lives that are faithful to God when the culture around them is hostile to God. And one of the reasons we're doing this series is that that describes our situation more and more. And what Daniel and his friends begin to learn in this chapter is that living as exiles Living in a culture hostile to God means trusting God as you faithfully engage culture with resolved civility. And the first, and that's the most important thing about living as an exile then, is trusting God. A lot of times we read books like Daniel, and like it's called Daniel, and we think Daniel must be the main character. Right? And since he's the main character, then... This book has to be all about what we can learn from Daniel himself. There certainly is some truth to that. There's a lot we can learn from Daniel. He's certainly a key character in the book. But we can't lose sight of the fact that the main character in this book ultimately, the main actor, the main person driving the action in this book is not Daniel, but God. God himself is the one who is behind all that takes place in the book of Daniel. And so to live as an exile means, first and foremost, living, trusting that no matter what is going on in the world around you, that God is still in control. Three times in this chapter, we see statements that make it clear that God is the one who is driving things forward. Like I already mentioned the first one.
4: Right?
1: At the very beginning of the chapter, we saw how it was God who gave Judah over to the Babylonians. Even God's chosen people going into exile was God's doing. And then in verses 8 and 9, we read this. Daniel resolved not to, not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. It's easier to read that and focus on and Daniel's resolve and admire how resolved Daniel was, that he could have stand his ground. But we can't lose sight of the fact that it was God who caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel in the first place. Without God at work, Daniel's resolve would have been for naught. We see another example in Verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. God gave knowledge. God gave understanding. Daniel and his friends are are going to rise in the Babylonian court because of their their knowledge and their learning. They're going to become prominent figures because of all that they learned and all that they know, but they didn't gain that knowledge and learning through their own self-effort. They didn't gain that knowledge by just putting their nose to the grindstone and studying like crazy. I'm sure they they worked at it. I'm sure they did that. But ultimately, it was God who gave them knowledge. It was God who gave them the understanding so that they could rise in the Babylonian court. God gave them what they needed to be successful in the position that God had placed them. as we live as exiles on this earth, the most important thing is that we trust God. We trust that even when it seems like God's enemies are winning, God is still in control and still bringing about His good purposes. We trust that wherever God has placed us, God will give us what we need to live the life He wants us to live in that place. God wanted Daniel to rise in the Babylonian court, and so he gave Daniel what he needed. God's desire for you will not be to rise in the Babylonian court, I'm pretty sure. But whatever his desire for you is, he will provide you and give you what you need to be successful in the place that he has placed you. Not the place you want to be, necessarily, but the place that he desired you to be. He will give you what you need. Living in that exile is first and foremost about trusting God. And as we trust God, it, it allows us to live with resolved faithfulness. And so as part of their kind of being Babylonianized, we see two things happen in this passage to Daniel and his friends. One is that they're given new names, and the other is that they're given Babylonian food to eat. And it's really important to notice that they only object to one of the two. Daniel and his friends are, are have their original names, right? Are names given to them to honor the God of Israel. Right? Daniel means God of my Judge. Hananiah means God hath been gracious. Mishael means Who is what God is? And Azariah means, the Lord has helped. These are names given to them to honor the God of Israel. But as they come to Babylon, they're given names that instead honor the Babylonian false gods. Daniel is named Belshazzar, which means, Bel, protect him. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, which means the command of Aku, which is another Babylonian god. Mishael becomes Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. So these names that they're given, they're, they're insulting, they're degrading, they're offensive to God, and yet Daniel and his friends don't raise an objection the renaming. Right? If you only know a little bit about the book of Daniel, you'll probably know two stories. Right? You know Daniel and the lion's den, and you know the fiery furnace. Right? If I asked you to tell me the story of the fiery furnace off the top of your head, and I asked, like, who was put in the fiery furnace, right, you probably wouldn't say Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Right? You're probably saying Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? Because even the Jewish author of the book of Daniel just started calling them by these new Babylonian names. They didn't throw a fuss about giving, being given these new names. For these for the guys, living in exile meant that, that they had to decide that it was not wise to fight the fight over their names being changed. They didn't fight that fight. On the other hand, Daniel did resolve not to eat any of the food or drink offered to him. In verse 8 we read, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. So there's likely two reasons Daniel wouldn't eat this food. One is that it almost certainly wasn't kosher. It didn't follow the, the Jewish food laws. And second, at least some of the meat was likely had already been like sacrificed to idols in the Babylonian system, and now it's being offered to them. And so for one or both of those reasons, Daniel decides, I can't eat that food. And instead, he asked for nothing but vegetables and water for ten days, and he wants to show that this diet wouldn't leave him weak and emaciated. So, you asked for this special diet. It's like, just give me vegetables. Just give me water. I'll show you that I'll be fine. Right? And we know the chapter plays out that that turns out to be true. Right? And there's a certain segment of like, the, the healthy living world that has grabbed onto this chapter right? and turned it into books and blogs and podcasts with titles like The Daniel Diet right? The Daniel Fast. Right? Like, please hear me when I tell you like, that's not what this passage is about. It's not about what to eat. Right? And if you want to be convinced, let me offer you this little piece of evidence. In verse 14, right, we read, At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Right? And you might say, Yes, like, see. That, that is what I want. that, that is what, I want to look young and nourished and, and healthier. Right? Here's the thing. That word we translate, better nourished, it's just the Hebrew word for fat. Right? The literal translation is, at the end of ten days, they look fatter than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Right? It just so happens that in that culture, fatness was a sign of health and virility, and so like we translate it that way, but it just means you're fatter. That's all it means. And so if you want to get fat, you can try that, but like it's not... Whatever. This passage is not a promotion of vegetarianism. It's a promotion of resolved faithfulness. Clearly it was God who was working through that diet to give Daniel what he needs. It wasn't like a, this is what everyone should do. And Daniel would resolve that he would not eat this food. Because it would cause him to violate a, a direct command in God's word. Right? The Jewish laws were clear, uh, you can't eat this kind of food. Whereas he did not object to his name being changed because while it was degrading, while it was offensive, while it was insulting, it, it wasn't a matter of obedience to God's word. And I think the distinction between those two is incredibly important living well as exiles, living in a culture that is hostile to God means understanding the difference. And then only exercising your resolve when faithfulness is truly at stake. I preached a couple of weeks ago on like, choosing the right hills to die on. This is another example of that. And like right now, it's not hard to look around and see Christians digging their heels in and, and fighting on issues that are, that are more like the name change than the diet. Right? on Issues that are not a matter of obedience to God's word, but a matter of secondary issues. Right? Like Christians are, are fighting things that are perhaps insulting or degrading to Christians, right? but don't actually cause you to violate any part of God's law. You can get away with that for now because there's still enough Christian influence in our culture to to lend support to that. But as culture continues to shift and become more and more clear that we are exiles, then choosing rightly when to show resolve will become more and more important. And the time to show resolve is when faithfulness to God's word is on the line. when we choose to show resolve, then the way we show it also matters. We should show our resolve with civilized engagement with the culture. In verse 8, right, Daniel resolved to not eat the food. But then did you notice how he expressed his resolve? Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for He asked the chief chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. He asked the chief official for permission. Understand, Daniel was already resolved. He was not going to back down on this. He was not going to change his mind. He was not going to eat that food. He starts the conversation by engaging in a civilized discussion about why he doesn't want to eat the food. He asks for permission first. And so often the discourse in our cultures, like people who disagree just jump straight to shouting and expressing outrage and anger and yelling and not even beginning to try to understand one another. But that's not what Daniel does that he practices civilized engagement. He asks permission first. He has a civil discussion first. He offers a test first before he insists on going all out. He has civil discourse with people he radically disagrees with. And living in that exile means not relying on force of numbers or outrage or volume, but on civilized, persuasive engagement. We'll talk more in the weeks ahead about what to do when that doesn't work. But civilized engagement needs to be the first step. Having conversations, asking questions, Need to be the first step when disagreement arises, not immediate outrage. Civilized engagement is a sign that we trust God to do what He did in Daniel's case to make those who hear us show favor and compassion for us if He so chooses. Living as an exile means doing these things. What we'll see is that Daniel and his friends, through these kind of practices, build a, a life for themselves that is enjoyable and yeah, full of joy If they live in Babylon. But it's never fully fulfilled. It's a reminder that even as we do these things, even if we can find enjoyment in as exiles... When we live at as exiles, we are still exiles. We are never fully at home. As I've been working on this sermon series, I've been reminded often of the, the quote from C.S. Lewis, in which he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And no matter how faithfully we live as exiles, that will always be true. We'll never be fully satisfied in this world because we were made for another world. Our home is in another world. But as we saying earlier, like, we can look forward to the day when we will be in our true home. Look forward to the day when we and be with God forever. And the reason we can be with God forever is that Jesus came and he forgave our sins and made eternity possible for us. And Daniel's story points us forward to that day as well. As Daniel points us forward to Jesus. As much as Daniel can be kind of a role model for us in some cases, he is much more a sign and a model of, of the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. If God allowed Daniel to be taken into exile from the promised land into sinful Babylon, so the Father sent His Son from heaven into our sinful world. As Daniel was faithful in regard to his food and his drink, Jesus was faithful in everything. Daniel would rise to power and great authority in Babylon, but God would guide Jesus to a place of even greater authority where he would reign over all of heaven and earth. Ultimately, as high as Daniel rose in the ranks of Babylon, he by himself couldn't save God's people. He was not sufficient himself. There had to be one who came after Daniel to fulfill that role, and that one is Jesus one who modeled perfect obedience, who modeled perfectly what it looks like to live as an exile in a sinful and broken world, the one who modeled trusting God perfectly and faithfulness perfectly, the one who engaged with his enemies in a loving, civilized manner, and ultimately the midst of all that never sinned and went to the cross for us, that through believing in him, our sins, our failure at living in exile, could be forgiven. All because Jesus came, leaving the glories of heaven to live among us, be like us in every way, yet without sin. If you're here and you've, you've never trusted Jesus, you've never asked Jesus to forgive you for your sins, I'd urge you to do that first and foremost. Those that are here who have trusted in Jesus. And the call of this book and this chapter in Daniel is to go out into our culture, remembering that this world is not our home, that we are exile. And to live as faithful exiles, live trusting God, live resolved to stand firm and not disobey God's word, but also resolve to engage in civilized discussion, and then to invite people in to faith and trust in Jesus as we engage the world around us. We can do that all with confidence that there is coming a day when God will return us set all things right when we will no longer be exiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to be Here in this place, gathered together as your people. Thank you for setting aside time that we can worship you, that we can fellowship together, we can enjoy fellowship with one another and enjoy each other's company. Thank you for your word and the way it informs us and points us to Jesus and guides our lives. Father, would you help us to know what it looks like day by day to live as faithful exiles? Would you give us wisdom and insight we need to to think carefully about how to live in this world? Give us hearts that engage in meaningful discussions with people we disagree with. Would we be able to disagree well? We not give in to outrage and anger, but seek conversation and understanding, even as we are resolved to remain faithful. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. That you leave here and you go out into this world that is not your home, would you go living as faithful exiles? You are dismissed.